Hello, and welcome to Co-op Cast, where game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly talk about cooperative board games. Join us each week as we break down one game and have a related design discussion. Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, how's everybody doing? And welcome to episode 11 of Co-op Cast. And today we are reviewing Flip Ships. Yeah, so Flip Ships is a dexterity-based cooperative game, which there aren't too many of them out there, although I found a couple of them while looking lately. You've got Dungeon Fighter, you've got Flip Ships, of course, and you've got Dead of Winter Flick'em Up. All right, before we get into the rules, I'm going to quickly cover a little bit of the flavor of the game. And I'm going to read right out of the rule book here. It was an ambush. That's the only way to describe it. The mothership appeared out of nowhere, creating a massive shadow over the city. Within seconds, wave after wave of fighters poured out of it, filling the sky. We're launching the ships we have ready, but it isn't much. Our pilots fight bravely, defending the planet while we ready the rest of the fleet. Explosions fill the sky, and we've taken some hits, but we won't give up. Will you? Will you? Yeah, so that gives you a little bit of the flavor of it. A mothership pops up, you got a bunch of little fighters coming down at you, and your job is to blow up the mothership and destroy the fighters. And to get into the uh, rules, it's a pretty basic rule set, as uh, is par for the course with dexterity games. Depending on the number of players, you each take your color of little spaceships. And uh, with two players, you start with more of them. With uh, more players, you start with fewer. And you start with level one spaceships, which are each randomly dealt a uh, level one power. Each player is dealt a level one power, which will give you some sort of little advantage with those level one ships. You deal two rows of enemies at the top of this planet range board, and then at the back of them is the big mothership. And one player at a time, you get to flip your ships. I think the regular suggested way to do it is to put them on the edge of a table and then flip them from there. But uh, they also include a wooden tower that you can flip from. It's called the launching pad. Ooh, sexy. So uh, you flip the ships, and any enemy cards they land on are destroyed, except for uh, some enemy special powers. Some enemies can shield other enemies. Some enemies take two hits to destroy. If you land inside the mothership, because the mothership is actually a four-sided little cardboard standy thing, if you land inside of that, you do one damage to the mothership. Uh, And each player does that in order. And once every player has flipped and you've destroyed as many ships as you can... The ships all move. Most of them will move one space, which gives you uh, one or two turns to stop them before they actually hit the planet. Some of them will move two spaces, and fast ships will push slower ships in front of them. Some ships even move straight to the planet right away. Each ship has uh, between one to three damage it causes, and you've got a a life uh, total for the Earth, basically. And uh, if that reaches zero, you lose. But at the same time, when that reaches certain spots on the track... You also unlock first your level 2 ships, which get a level 2 power. And then uh, eventually, when you're very close to death, you unlock your level 3 ships, with that, which have the strongest power of all. And uh, what you need to do is you need to destroy the entire deck. So you get a deck of a certain number of cards uh, based on uh, the number of players in the game. And you need to kill every uh, alien in that deck. And they get reshuffled in if they hit the Earth. The only way to actually destroy them is to land your tokens on them. But then additionally, you have to destroy the mothership. And when you get down to only uh, six or fewer cards in the deck at the end of a turn, at the end of that turn, all of the aliens attack with double strength. So that's like kind of your amped up, or like really need to destroy everybody moment. 
And then if the mothership's still alive after surviving that one final alien attack turn, you get one final turn of just attacking the mothership, although in that final turn, your player powers don't apply. And if you can uh, blow up the mothership and completely clear out the enemy deck, you win. Otherwise, uh, the mothership blows up the earth and you lose. Great rules explanation. It is pretty straightforward, although there are a couple weird rules near the end, but I guess we'll get into that in our top five. Yeah. So uh, if you have not listened to the podcast before, we're going to go through our top five basically aspects or just interesting things in the game. Uh, Some of them will be cons, some of them will be pros, sometimes we'll have something in a mix. And uh, we'll go back and forth, starting with our least important of the five and working up to the thing that sticks out to us most about the game. So, uh, Peter, do you want to start with your number five? Sure. My number five is variety. And this covers a lot of things for me in the game. And it's both a pro and a con, I think. So there's a variety of enemy ships. Like you said, they move either one, two, or infinite. Although with the infinite ones, they will stop if they bounce into another ship. And they do various amounts of damage, anywhere from one to, I think it's four, is the highest one. You also have player powers. So you have a ship one, two, and three. There are four cards for each. So you can play with up to four players. You shuffle the level one ships. You shuffle level two. You shuffle level three and deal those out to players. So there's a little bit of variety there. You're going to have a different one with a different two, with a different three in each game. And then there are also a couple of variants in the back of the rule book. So I think there's a decent amount of variety in the game, although, to be honest, it's a dexterity game, and most of the time you're just flicking anyway, and those special powers and the special ships, they give you a little bit of things to think about, but it's not its not going to be a brain burner here. Yeah, I'm going to talk about the variety question a little bit uh, later, but I, I agree with some of the points you made there. All right, Mike, so what's your number five? Mine is uh, what I'm going to call sort of a false multiplayer aspect of the game. So to be clear, there is a competitive variant where you all are basically just trying to flick into the mothership. I don't even really consider that to be the same game because that just sounds like uh, some kind of like, you know, drinking game or something. Yeah. But in the regular multiplayer, you're just taking turns, flicking the ships at things. There's no possibility of cooperation except for saying, hey, you hit those things. The game is basically no different if I just chose to flick all six ships myself And, you know, to be fair, a lot of co-ops can be played solo where you control everybody, but a lot of co-ops also have hidden hands or hidden information or ways to help each other. This has nothing. So, you know, it sort of pretends to be a multiplayer game, but honestly, you know, this game is kind of inspired by games like uh, Galaga and Galaxian and that kind of thing. And this game just reminds me of, like, if I'm playing a video game like that and I pass the controller to my friend, it's not really a multiplayer game. We're just taking turns playing it solo. So that's a con for me. I don't really feel like this game does much. And maybe that's just how dexterity games are going to be when they're co-ops, I mean. But yeah, it doesn't feel like much of a co-op. It just feels like kind of you're taking turns playing a game. Yep, I'm going to get into that a little bit higher. So I'm going to go ahead and get into my number four. And my number four is it's accessible. So for the most part, I mean, we got into the nitty gritty of the rules. But really, you tell people to take this launch pad, put a disc on top, flick it at the ship's. And if it lands on something, you remove it. I mean, it's usually as easy as that. Yes, there are some special powers, but like you said, there's only two. And basically it is you have to hit the ship twice or there's a ship shielding something next to it, which means you have to hit the shielding ship first. So, I mean, it's very easy to teach, very easy to learn, and anybody could play it. I know you were playing it with your five-year-old the other day, and I've certainly played it with my nine-year-old and my six-year-old. 
So my number four is it's a very accessible game. Yeah, mine is, and, and just for full disclosure here, uh, as Peter could tell you, dexterity games are not my bag generally. And this one I found especially awkward, so this is another con, two in a row for me. You know, I, I already have a little bit of trouble with games where I flick things along a flat surface, which is how the majority of dexterity games kind of take form. This one, like flicking it in an arc, especially from the table, I found extremely difficult. From the uh, the launching pad, I think you called it, Peter, uh, it was a little bit easier, but still, I never quite felt like I was really getting the hang of it, and sometimes I would just flick it like way, way past the table, and sometimes I would flick it and it would go nowhere. That is one rule I forgot, by the way. When you flick it a very short distance, you get two more flicks uh, before you are stuck with it wherever it landed. But yeah, so I, I just found the, the flicking didn't jive that well with me. It was not as smooth for me. And this is a personal thing. I'm not saying this will affect all of you. But it was not as smooth as some dexterity games have been for me in the past. Yeah, I do think sliding something across the table is an easier more natural motion, or maybe it's just so many games use it that it's easier to learn. But it is it was definitely hard for me the first time I, I pulled that out to flip these ships. Peter, why don't you hit us with your third thing? So my number three is exactly what you said earlier, is I feel like it is very much a solo game. And the reason it feels that way, much more so than even another dexterity game we mentioned earlier, Dungeon Fighter, you're basically throwing dice at the board and everybody's taking turns. But there are two things that made it feel less of a solo game to me. Number one is you're only throwing one thing at a time, where here you're literally flipping every ship you have. And at the beginning of the game, you start with two or three ships based on number of players. And as the city gets more and more damaged, you are going to get more of those ships into your hand. So by the end, you could be flicking anywhere up to seven ships before anybody else even takes a turn. So that integrated turn structure made it feel less like a solo game when playing Dungeon Fighter. The other thing that made it feel less solo is it was a round board and you're sitting around the board. The one thing about flip ships is you're always flicking from the same end of the table. And so literally I have to get up after my turn and allow someone else to sit down so they can take their turn. And so because of that, it really felt a lot more like Really, there's one spot to be taking it from, and one person should be flicking all the ships. Yeah, I mean, it comes back to my video game example. It's like you have to give up your spot on the couch and hand the controller over to somebody else. Um, I didn't think specifically about, like, the whole sitting thing, but it's a good point. Like, literally, you need to move and let someone else take the only spot there is. Yeah, and that was just weird. And and playing Dungeon Fighter, I noticed that that was just such a, a vast difference for me, and it made it feel less solo to me. So, Mike, what's your number three? So, they can't all be cons, so here's a pro for you. I do like the mechanic where you unlock stronger ships as the game goes on. Thematically, it's a little hit or miss. You know, on the one hand, it's like, why when your hangar bays and all your defenses are being destroyed, are you getting better defenses? But on the other hand, uh, if you look at, like, Japanese anime shows, which are probably closer to the video game influences of this, they always have some giant robot that they bring in in the last minute instead of using at the beginning, and nobody knows why. But all that being said, mechanically, it's a fun ramp-up, because I get cooler powers and more things to manage as the game goes on. And I should clarify, um, it's not that all three powers apply to all of your ships. The level one power only applies to your level one ships, the level two power only applies to your level two, and so on. 
Yeah, so it's nice that you ramp up. You are flicking more as the game goes on, as things get more desperate. You have more powers to manage as you get more comfortable with the game. It just works really well to uh, make it a nice little build in the experience. Yeah, so that kind of leads a little bit into my number two, is there's some strategy to this game. I mean, it's not mindless flicking. There are different ships with different powers, as we said. You want to hit the two ships so they don't push the one ships forward. The ships that move one space typically are the ones that do more damage. So if you have a ship behind it that's pushing it forward faster, you want to get rid of the ship behind it if you can first, so it's not pushing that more damaging ship up. If there is one of those super fast ships that comes all the way down to the bottom, you certainly want to not kill a ship in front of it that is slowing it down. So if you have a one move ship in front of that, you want to leave the one ship there until you can kill the one in the back. So there is a little bit of strategy to this game, which ships you use when. So sometimes it's better to use your level two ships first because you really need to clear certain enemies, make sure they're done, and then maybe you're going to save your level one ships to shoot at the mothership. So with each of them having a little bit different power, there's a little bit to think about there, which is not, it's not just a mindless flicking game. I mean, I'll, I'll disagree with you slightly, uh, but I think it's a, it's an effect of how good you are at dexterity games. For someone like me, who's not very good, I find it is a mindless flicking game because however I might like to hit that one particular guy, all I can really do is aim at the biggest clump I can find and hope I land somewhere near it. So I think for skilled players, yes, you're going to get some dexter- uh, some strategy, but I certainly don't have it. Fair enough. Uh, so my number two returns to an earlier one Peter said, which is the variety. For me, unfortunately, it was a con, even though I know, Peter, you were a bit more mixed. Yes, I will concede that uh, you have these different ship powers, but they aren't that engaging and they get repeated a bit across the three different levels. The enemy powers are super minor. The shields are kind of interesting. The double hits are kind of interesting. But besides that, it's just different damage and different speed. So I didn't find that very compelling. And once you strip that all away, it's the exact same game every time. Like literally the exact same game. And if I'm just being fair and comparing it to uh, other dexterity games and not just other games in general... I find that, you know, with racing games, you have different track configurations and different things you can put in, and you can, like, have fewer or more walls. Uh, If you go to a game like Sorry Sliders, you get, like, the different uh, boards you play on that change up the gameplay quite a bit. If you look at something like Catacombs, which is a competitive uh, dexterity game, uh, you get, like, different enemies you fight and in different arenas. That changes up the game a lot. So I feel like if you hold this up against most dexterity games, uh, if you play it a few times in a row, it still might be fun because the activity itself is fun, but I think it's going to get very, very samey very quickly. Fair enough. So my number one is Learning Curve. I think this is a game that is hard to master. It certainly took me a little while to get used to flicking. I couldn't even flick it to where the mothership was my first few times playing but it's a game you get better at the more you play. Now, I know that's true of most dexterity games, but I feel like there really is, because this is a different type of flick, it really is something you have to work at and almost practice at. Now, I'm not saying you have to practice an hour a day for for seven days a week. But what I am saying is if you take five to ten minutes before your first game, and that's now how I introduce it to people, I said just go ahead and flick at the mothership. Practice that, because if you can get that shot down... It's very easy to pull it back a little bit and and get on those cards and figure out the power you need for those. So 
I do think while it is a hard game your first few times playing, once you get the hang of it, it really isn't that bad. And then, you know, you, there's ways to ramp up the difficulty from there. Yeah, mine is uh, is similar, and it is a pro, so I'm ending with a pro. And actually, I, I was more negative on this game until I played it, like Peter said, with my five-year-old Harrison. He was so into the game and enjoyed it so much. We were playing at a uh, convention, and... We played a bunch of games there, and when I came home and asked him what game he remembered, he said Flip Ships, and that was one of the first ones we played. So it clearly left an impression on him, and he, he, he wants me to borrow it from you, Peter, so hey, I might hit you up for that soon. Absolutely. So yeah, so, so my number one with that experience is that the game is accessible. I agree with Peter there's a learning curve, but Harrison was <laughs> was dominating me and hitting much better shots than I was very quickly within his first game. And the game gives some nice things you can adjust. You can bring all the cards and the mothership closer to make it a little bit easier to hit. You have the uh, the launching pad or tower or whatever that we already talked about. Uh, with him, I was letting him move it a little bit closer. And, you know, I would generally let him reflip it several times until he hit something. So, yes, we were fudging the rules a little bit. But he really enjoyed it, and we play dexterity games, and he's gotten bored with races and stuff before because you're doing the exact same thing each time. So I think perhaps the novelty of the flipping itself kind of drew him in more. So I would have been more negative on the game, but I do end on a positive note because, hey, it's pretty fun to play with kids, I think. Well, and the other thing we never really touched on is the theme. So especially for kids, but even for adults, like the theme of spaceships coming down and you got to kind of blow them out of the sky. It's some nostalgia for some of us older guys for games like you were saying, like Galaga and even like Defenders, you know, you're just shooting up there trying to knock them out of the sky before they get down. Or Space Invaders, right? Wasn't that the big one? Yes, that's true. Space Invaders as well. Yeah. So, I mean, it's definitely some nostalgia. It's definitely a cool idea. Even movies like Independence Day had the theme of trying to defend the Earth against these alien invaders. And so it's a theme, you know, we talked about accessibility. It's a theme that's accessible, too. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And, and I do enjoy the theme. I, I didn't touch on this, but an honorable mention I have is also the uh, the graphic design and the art seems inspired by older video games. And it's really attractive. And the, the big, clunky cardboard pieces that make up the mothership are really fun to see on the board. So there's a lot of nice stuff here. Yeah, all right. Well, I will close things with my final thoughts. I think Flip Ships is a game that once you get over the initial learning barrier and learn to flip those ships better, and again, I think you can take five minutes before you start and just practice. And I would suggest this for almost any dexterity game. I was playing Dungeon Fighter today, and that's just throwing dice on a table trying to hit a target. But let me tell you, even just a couple times practicing really gets you into the flow of the game. And even if you haven't played that day, you should probably do a couple practice shots before you get started anyway. I think once you get over that, it's something like darts. Yes, there's not variety in darts. The board is always a certain distance away. But some days you're going to be on and some days you're going to be off. And that's the excitement of dexterity games to me. Some days you just don't have it and some days you cannot be stopped. And the thrill and excitement in both my six-year-old, your five-year-old, and my nine-year-old, when they hit that awesome shot, there's just, it's an adrenaline surge you don't always get from just playing games. You know, it's, it's that physical, tactile part of it also that I think really gets your blood pumping. Yeah, so 
on my side, it's a... I'm, I'm not necessarily recommending it, but I think for certain people it could be more of a recommend. Again, I'm not a big dexterity fan, but I will say that this was a weaker dexterity experience for me. Most dexterity games I play, even though they're not my favorite, I'll still play like three or four times in a row just because I do enjoy the experience. Like that's what I do with a uh, pitch car and bicycle and all those kind of games. This one I played once and I was like, all right, that's fine. And even played with my five-year-old, which was more fun. We played once and I was like, all right, that's fine. So it definitely didn't grab me as much as some other dexterity games. It definitely did not like convert me to being a fan of dexterity games more. If you are a fan of dexterity games, I think it could be a recommend for you. Although, again, keep in mind, like we said, it is different in its uh, function than most dexterity games, so that might change your experience. If you're not a fan of dexterity games, I would say definitely don't get it. It's not going to fix that for you. And if you have kids to play with, I think I'd be a stronger recommend for me just because I think that will give them a lot of enjoyment, even if while you're playing, you're not necessarily having the best time. And it's interesting, you brought something up, usually we end on our final thoughts, but I do have one more thought because of something you mentioned. Games like Pitch Car and games like that take a while to set up too. So once you've got them set up, you really don't want to break it down. And this is pretty quick to set up. I mean, you put together the sideboard and then you deal out some cards. So it's not a long setup time, so maybe that, I mean, I think that's a little bit of a pro as well for it. No, that's, that's a good call, and it's also cheaper than a lot of those games, especially the ones like Pitch Car that have wooden components. So, yeah, those, those probably could have made it onto my list, but you're right, that does push the game higher in my esteem compared to other dexterity games. All right, well, we're going to do something a little different this week for our design discussion. Because we have Halloween coming up, and it's the spooky time of year. Oh, man, so spooky. <laughs> we are going to cover our top five cooperative, spooky, or horror-themed games. So why don't you lead off with your number five? All right, so I tried to stick pretty strictly to um, like games that I thought were actually Halloween or horror-themed, and not just games that were like sort of like had dangerous things attacking you because that could almost be any co-op. So my number five was uh, Mysterium, which uh, if you haven't played it, has one player working as a, a ghost, I believe is the theme, giving clues to the other players. Yes. I will say this is not a favorite game of mine. I much prefer uh, playing code names or even Dixit over Mysterium, but there is some fun to be had there. Honestly... Although there were a lot of horror co-ops, I was looking over them and I was like, man, I don't like most of these games. So my top five don't necessarily mean games that would be like even in my top 100 necessarily of all games of all time. But Mysterium's all right. It's, it's fun to play with, uh, with Peter, especially when he's giving bad clues. That's always hilarious. I do that well. Yes. <laughs> and just the whole ghost, like, you know, not being able to give you clear clues and giving you uh, ideas that you totally misinterpret, it can be pretty fun. So that's my uh, fifth horror co-op. How about you, Peter? Yeah, and I did these kind of in, not only in the order that I like them, but also I think as I move up and up, it gets closer and closer to that that theme. Although I will say my number five is pretty strong on that horror theme, and that is Ghost Stories. So Ghost Stories is kind of a tower defense game. You have enemies attacking from the outside and they come in toward the middle and you're trying to stop them from flipping over tiles and so it is a very very difficult co-op game i think it is probably the first one out there that was 
really thought of as a super hard co-op, and it's it's still a very hard co-op, but it's fun. The reason it's lower on my list is I never want to play this game, and I'm not really sure why. I think it's because it's a four-player game. It's funny, we talk about Flip Ships as a solo game disguising as a multiplayer game. I think Ghost Stories is a four-player game that might be playable with lower player count, but I really don't want to play it with any lower player count. Yeah, Ghost Stories is on my honorable mentions. Like you said, it's a little awkward to control the characters. can be very punishing and not in a way that I necessarily enjoyed, so it didn't make the cut, but I hear you on it. All right, so what's your number four? My number four, uh, a lot of you probably have never even heard of this game. And it's, I'm sort of stretching co-op a little bit because since it was like made in the late 80s or early 90s, even though you were working together to defeat somebody, I think there was like a sort of winner out of the whole group, kind of a... uh, Semi-co-op? But, you know, whatever. We always played it when I was a kid as a full co-op. So it was called The Omega Virus. You ever heard of this game, Peter? Oh, yeah. No, that's one of the ones that most people want to be brought back. Oh, really? Okay. I, I didn't know it was still a thing. But yes, if you if you didn't play it, um, it had this uh, this little like computerized voice that was supposed to be a virus that would like taunt you and and mock you as you played the game, and you were all working to find like the codes necessary to basically break through the virus's shield, and then you would go and you have to use the correct weapon to uh, to attack him and stop him from like destroying the entire space station you're on. This is kind of more of a uh, a 2001 or like other kind of robot horror movie where like the robots and the AI are trying to kill you. But uh, yeah, just in game form, like it's not a good game at all. It's not a good design, but we played the heck out of that as kids and and we would like turn the lights down and just have this robot laughing at us. And we'd, we'd shiver whenever his voice would come because he would just yell at you without warning sometimes. So not necessarily a strict horror game, but it certainly left some horror memories for us. Nice. How about you, Peter? You're a fourth one. So my number four is Eldritch Horror. You know, I thought about putting Arkham Horror on here, but ever since Eldritch came out, in all honesty, I really like Eldritch better. It's a streamlined version of what Arkham Horror does. You know, you're investigators, you're trying to close gates, you're trying to solve this mystery, you're trying to defeat this great old one. And so it's got the horror theme there, and it's got that Cthulhu theme there, which I know a lot of people enjoy. But I really think the mechanics in it are pretty nifty as well. You know, it's a game that we haven't gotten to the table in a while, but I'd really like to get it back. Well, interestingly enough, my number three is Eldritar. I'm a big Lovecraft fan. I've read um, almost all of his short stories and uh, longer stories, too. And yeah, I, I agree with everything Peter said. I don't need to add much. I think it is a pretty much in every way a refinement and improvement on the Arkham Horror engine and uh, a lot of fun experiences especially in the encounter cards with some pretty horrible stuff happening to you. Peter, your number three? My number three is Touch of Evil and I don't know that I like this game better than Eldritch Horror but I think it does the horror theme better. I think it fits this list better. I think it's a game where if you're going to pull something out on Halloween This is what you want to do. You're fighting against things like a scarecrow or a vampire, these classic horror monsters that you're facing against. You know, I mean, you're really rolling dice to move. You're rolling dice to resolve encounters. But I do think there is a a neat story that unfolds there. And again, if you're talking about horror, and I grew up watching a lot of those black and white horror shows on TV, I really do think this is the best game that encapsulates that black and white horror show. 
Yeah, I, I enjoyed that game for a while. Um, I would not put it above Arkham because I think the mechanics are so inferior. And it goes way too long sometimes. But that being said, I agree with you. It is great in terms of communicating that gothic horror and getting like some old horror tropes in a game. All right, Mike, what's your number two? My number two is uh, Arkham Horror LCG. We've talked about this one a whole lot. Uh, Peter and I just uh, tried out the first uh, two scenarios, which came out recently for the Path to Carcosa cycle. And really cool. The game continues to innovate and do awesome stuff, and I continue to love it and want to play it most of the time. So yeah, it's it's great. I've said enough about that on previous episodes, so go listen to those, but it's one of my favorites right now, so that's my number two. How about you, Peter? All right, so I didn't put this on only because I knew you would have it. I actually thought it would be your number one. So I want to talk about it a little bit. We did play the latest big box expansion, and I really like how they are innovating. They didn't just leave things the same. They had some cards that are the bad cards you draw that come into your hand and not only gum it up, but they give you something that you can't do on the board. So they're kind of like curses that enter your hand that you have to get rid of by spending actions. So I thought that was a neat innovation, and I'm really liking the story in that one even better than I like the first big box expansion so far. Yeah, I'd agree with that. There's there's some pretty cool things going on. And, and also, uh, for those who have played the game, it, it's really so far changed up how important clues are and how you get clues, which I appreciate because in the core box and almost the entire Dumbwitch Legacy cycle, uh, the Seeker characters that get clues most efficiently seemed a little bit overpowered. Yeah, no, I didn't even think about that. And maybe that's why I like it better. It's a little fightier so far. Yeah. All right, Peter, what's your number two? My number two, and you're not going to agree with this at all, especially since it's opposed to Arkham Horror LCG, is Mansions of Madness. I will tell you, and again, remember I did this thematically. For me, there is no game that gets you in the theme and the mood. When you turn that app on, and I've said this before, and those crows come flying out at you, it just immediately gets you enthralled in the game. And it's the kind of game you could play with anybody Halloween season's not only about playing with gamers, but it's about playing with non-gamers as well. And I think just introducing them to the Arkham universe and horror genre board games, there's almost nothing better than Mansions of Madness for that. Yeah, and it was in my honorable mentions. I could have put it higher, but, well, something else edged it out. So what is that something else? Well, I I kind of cheated, just to be honest. And this is another one from my childhood uh, because, I don't know, I'm, I'm just not as scared of things nowadays as much. So I think if I really want to get into the Halloween spirit, I got to kind of look back to my past. So uh, this is not really a co-op, but we pretty much played it as a co-op. So I guess I'm kind of uh, doing the same thing as the Omega virus. And it is the original brown wide as heck box for Hero Quest. Did you play much Hero Quest uh, when you were younger, Peter? You know, I didn't. That's one that escaped me, unfortunately. Well, let me tell you a little bit about the genius of Hero Quest. So one player would play, I think it was Zarkon, who was like the Overlord player. And again, technically he's trying to win, but whenever we play, the reason I said it was pretty much a co-op game is because we were just trying to give ourselves the best experience, but like we would do bad things as Zarkon just to give ourselves a better chance of winning. But uh, in HeroQuest, you would have, like, the same board always, but it would have different layouts and different hallways accessible and not. And there were just horrible traps to fall into. 
There was one mission where like a skeleton lord kidnapped you and you were stuck in a jail cell without any weapons. I mean, that was horrifying for me as like a little kid. There was another, I think one of the first uh, missions, a gargoyle like statue that you see comes to life and suddenly starts wailing on you. And it, it was just so vivid for me. Like I felt like I was in these horrifying dungeons with, with monsters just creeping around and, and giant boulders rolling towards me to kill me. And I was freaked out when I played those things. I always thought we were going to die. And this was not your, your Nancy Pantsy like, you know, sword and sorcery where you can revive yourself at the temple or descent second edition where you get to revive yourself several times before you actually lose the game. Man, you had a few healing potions, maybe. And when you were dead, you were dead for that mission. And uh, the game did not pull any punches. So it freaked me out as a kid. And even though it's not necessarily a fully co-op game and not necessarily 100% like horror slash Halloween themed, uh, nothing scared me more as a kid than going into an unknown dungeon in HeroQuest. Cool. I totally disagree with that choice, but very cool. And I see why you picked it. Well, give me your terrible first choice, man, if you're going to be trampling on my childhood. Well, you already trampled on my first choice, so uh, right back at you. It is Mysterium, my number one game for spooky slash Halloween theme. Now, I don't think this is a scary game, but you are playing a ghost in it. And again, it comes back to accessibility for me a lot of times now. I guess it's because my kids are getting to that age where I can play with them. And also... I. I'm starting to introduce non-gamers to games, so I can take it to family functions. I can take it to play with my neighbors, which who we've talked about in the past. So Mysterium's just the, a fun game where you can be a terrible clue giver, and really everybody gets engaged with it because even if you're one of the guessers, you're always helping other people out, and other people are helping you out, and it really is a cooperative experience. And there is a right and wrong answer. I think that's why I like it better than Dixit. You aren't just giving a random clue and hoping people can read your mind. Well, I guess it feels like that sometimes, but... So between the accessibility and the spooky Halloween theme, I think it's perfect for my number one on this list. Well, I'll have to give it another try sometime. Or I think uh, they came out with the app for it fairly recently, right? Have you tried that yet? I have not tried the app. Yeah, I'd be interested to experiment with that. So I have several honorable mentions. Do we have a little bit of time to talk about them? Yeah, let's go for it. Um, so one that didn't quite make the cut is Darkest Night. That's a solo game originally, but uh, there was a co-op way you could play it, and I think the second edition coming out has a larger co-op variant. A very tough game, lots of nice horror stuff going on, very like kind of scary art, and even some of your characters can be a little bit dark. But a uh, pretty fun co-op, pretty enjoyable. Yeah, so my first honorable mention is Shadows of Brimstone. I actually almost put this on my list just because my son loves it so much. I know you and I had a bad experience the first time we played it, but I know also there's a lot of new content that just came out, so I'm sure we'll get it back to the table again soon. Basically, it's Cowboys vs. Cthulhu. So if you like Cthulhu, if you like Cowboys, I mean, come on. It is another Flying Frog game, just like Touch of Evil, so there is a lot of randomness, roll to move, roll to shoot. A lot of randomness in the game, but there's a little tactics in there, too. Yeah, and I do want to give it another try. I didn't think of that one. Uh, but next one is sort of similar. Um, this might be on your honorable mentions, too. Uh, it's Zombicide Black Plague. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the original Zombicide, so that didn't even make my honorable mentions. But Black Plague I did find to be more enjoyable. I like that it was more focused on melee combat. 
thought the characters were more interesting. I liked the kind of darker theme instead of some of the goofy characters from the original Zombicide. So not a favorite game of mine, but I do enjoy it from time to time. So it was not all my honorable mentions, but the last one I had was Castle Ravenloft. You know, it's funny. I didn't even think about this game until I was looking through a list of co-ops that we'd put together long ago before we even started the podcast. And I was like, oh, yeah, that is a good game. You know, again, it's not anything that's going to burn your brain. It is more of a beer and pretzels type game. But running around a castle filled with vampires, you know, it's kind of neat. Yeah, I guess uh, I didn't think about it because... I think the later games in that system have improved on it so much. But you're right. I mean, it is the very first one in that uh, D&D adventure game system, and it was a lot of fun for a while. Two other things that I have not played, but I just wanted to mention because they exist and I don't want us to you know, give them no time. Uh, I've heard some good things about Witch of Salem, which is a co-op we have not gotten the chance to play yet. I haven't even heard of it. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's not a big release, but uh, there, there's some decent buzz about it. And then a big one that I would love, love, love to play because I'm a huge fan of the uh, TV show source material is uh, the newer cooperative Buffy the Vampire Slayer board game, which just, I think, came out with uh, an expansion with more uh, villains and more seasons of the show. I was a huge Buffy fan, and I've heard, uh, again, like some people have compared it to Eldritar and said a lot of the mechanics are fairly similar, but that's not a bad thing for me, especially since... uh, I love uh, Buffy as much, if not more, than I love H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. So that's when I hope to get to the table soon. And I imagine uh, if it's as good as I've heard, it could uh, bump out one of these games on my list currently. Yeah, you know, I've never seen the Buffy the Vampire Slayer TV series, but I heard good things about the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer game. And I like the movie, so I wouldn't be opposed to it, actually. I'd really like to try that as well. I'll see if I can uh, trade for it, you know, get rid of some of the things I'm not feeling right now. Yeah, we'll have to try to get it to the table for you guys. Yeah. All right, so uh, we will have another episode for you before Halloween, and we'll uh, we'll try to get something somewhat Halloween-themed for you for that one. But uh, thank you all for listening, and hope you have a great couple of weeks of co-op gaming. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Co-Opcast. We'll be back in two weeks to review another cooperative board game. Until then, please review us on iTunes. And while you're there, check out Mindless Fate. They provide our bumper music. Also, if you like co-op games and why else would you be here, check out coopboardgames.com. They have some great cooperative board game material. If you want to contact us, feel free to follow us on Twitter at MVP Board Games or email us at mvpboardgames at gmail.com. Hi, I'm Peter and I'm here with Mike. Hey, how's everybody get, uh, doing, going and doing? How are you all moving around your space? By the way, if you all can't hear, uh, this is Mike and my throat is pretty jacked up. Uh, Yeah, I'm a little under the weather, but we're going to push on through until I keel over dead. Well, don't keel over dead till we're done recording, please. I'll try my best, sir. We're launching the ships we have ready, but it isn't much. Our pilots fight bravely. Halloween season's not only about playing with gamers, but it's about playing with non-gamers as well. And I think, you know, just introducing them... Well, uh, podcasting has happened. Yes, it has.
See ya. <laughs> <coughs> oh, that's a laugh cough. Laugh cough right there.